0: Here we go. It's the Hot Stove Society radio show on Cairo Radio. My name is Tom Douglas, chef-owner of a few joints here around Seattle, including Sea town Restaurant in the North End, the Pike Place Market area, serious takeout out in Ballard. Lola's been open now for oh, almost 10 weeks in Carlisle Room across from the Paramount Theater. Uh, and, of course, we're coming to you live from the Hot Stove Society kitchen studio here in the beautiful Hotel Andra. <laughs> And I'm joined by the chef in the chapeau, who That's is also right. our audience motivator. That's right,
1: Mr. Douglas. How are you doing today? You're a little late today, bud. Oh, man. Traffic on Madison. Traffic on Madison. You poured... The best thing is it's going to take two years to fix
0: it. Well, you know, there are other ways around. <laughs> uh, yes, if you, you could go ahead. Through arboretum.
1: <laughs> when go when I When I stopped, I was like, oh, my God.
0: All right. Anyway, this is a two-hour show dedicated to the taste of the world. And to the beverages that we drink every day. And so we're not allowed to really talk much about uh, traffic on Madison or COVID. Two in the same. Yeah. Today, big show, two hours. We got peak of the season. Uh, get savory with lemons. Oh, yeah. Make Pamela citrus. Pamela <laughs> had some interesting talks. Uh, Tara's going to talk croissant. Croissant. Did I
1: do that correct, chef? Croissant. Croissant. Yes, you, did it, you did it much better than
0: you used to. Your French That's accent the, is getting is getting better. I'm going to the same French accent teacher that you went to. Yes. And, uh, <laughs> Too bad mine died. Yeah. <laughs> <Ooh>. <laughs> we're gonna make marmalade from winter citrus, including my favorite winter citrus. You know what that is? Uh-uh. It is blood orange. And I, I thought you know, were gonna keep it a surprise. It's in my uh, it's in my taste of the week this week. So, oh, blood orange. I love those. Bob yep. Bar Green is here. The famous Bob Bar restaurants have also now opened a vegan version. Or Vegan or
1: vegetarian?
2: Vegan. Vegan and, uh,
1: uh, To follow the word of my wife, what a great idea. <laughs> okay. To add it
2: on, you mean? Thank you. Thank yeah, you to that.
1: add it on.
0: Muscles, muscles, muscles. Sea uh, town has got uh, muscles, and we're going to talk about some of the different preparations that you can do with muscles in your very own home. And lastly, of course, we're going to play Rub With Love Tasty Trivia, brought to you by Rub With Love Spice Rubs and Sauces. Oddly enough... A product line that I manufacture myself.
1: Oh, it's yours? Oh, yeah, I never so. realized that. Yeah.
0: Let's talk our taste of the week. You want me to start? <laughs> Go ahead. Some of the times uh, when I t- taste of the week, it's more about uh, maybe reliving a, if, uh, an era of time in my life, or it's more about trashy food, because you know I have an affinity for some, some trashy food. I, like,
1: I have learned a few things from you, yes. Yes, yes, like uh, coconut,
0: coconut prawns, or... Burger King. Um,
1: I don't have a... A No, no, Kentucky Fried Chicken, sorry. Yeah,
0: yeah, there you go. Kentucky Fried Chicken. Chicken. uh, Homemade corn dogs that I take the batter and I roll the batter in bacon bits and then deep fry it. (laughs) Yeah, baby. Yeah, baby. Look it up. I haven't had those yet. Evening Magazine, look it up. But anyway, this week when I was taping my evening uh, segments, not Evening
1: Magazine, it's Evening. You forget to mention the famous fish that we keep eating lately that you've been sauteing in the... those, those dry fish, what do you call those? The Goldfish. Goldfish. Oh, the goldfish. Yeah, yeah the pepper shrimp goldfish that yeah. I pan-fry in but butter and make that's it fat. It's totally fun to just do something like oh, that. Because so it actually
0: tastes good. I have those, I serve those on the chowder down at Seatown now in the Caesar salad. <laughs> <laughs> I put the, uh, our peri-peri rub on them so they got a little kick. And they just suck. They're I mean, succulent. If chef. you've
1: never had it, you owe it to you, and you like, you like those fish, you should definitely try Tom's fish. <laughs> you know who loved those uh, pepper shrimp goldfish? I guess She served
0: them in her house, in from her kitchen. Who? Julia. Oh, wow. Yeah, Julia Child. Oh, you're special. Yes, I am. <laughs> uh, anyway, for uh, this week, though, on evening, I did sweet and sour pork. Because when, uh, when Loretta was growing up, that's what she wanted from when we would go out to Chinese food all the time. And uh, she wanted the sweet and sour pork. So I just made a version because it's wintertime, and it's okay to use that kind of fruit and vegetable now for me. Yeah, yeah, I give yeah. myself permission during the winter to use pineapple and blood oranges, and you know all that kind of stuff. Grapefruits—I had a beautiful grapefruit the other night. Lovely. I, I just had a grapefruit this morning. It was. I just can't stand using that stuff when uh, in the summer when we've got berries and all this the plums and nectarines and everything that we grow here. So, so now's the time. And I also didn't—I don't like you know um, using red dye number two. So a lot of. Sweet and sour pork comes in that bright red sauce. So I use blood oranges as part of my coloring sweetener and coloring. I made a beautiful pink sauce. I did chunks of fresh pineapple, big chunks of peppers, but my, my sweet and sour sauce. I like it thick, but not as thick as you get it in a Chinese restaurants sometimes. And it's not an oily sauce, so I just did right. the quick smoke. But the vegetables need to stay crunchy. They need to right, it's not right, like some right. other sauces where you cook things down. I want my sauces, my vegetables, my bell pepper. I did a little jalapeno. I did rice vinegar and lime juice for my sour part. Just regular sugar for my sweet part. So,
1: so walk us through it quickly. the Walk us through it? Yeah. Ah. Uh, you got, you-
0: get it? Yeah. I did it in a saute pan. You want pan. to use chopstick for that one? No. No. Uh, I, I didn't. Loretta could never at that age. <laughs> so in a big saute pan, I hot seared fresh ginger, silver dollar size chunks of bell pepper, same of pineapple chunks, uh, a little bit of lime zest and uh, sliced jalapeno, big chunks of green onion. And then I did. I fried my pork. I marinated my pork in ginger, garlic, lemon juice, sesame oil, and soy sauce for a okay, few soy hours. soy sauce, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, uh, and then I put it into a dredge of rice flour, cornstarch, so that it stayed nice and crispy. So then I just fried them, and I made my sauce at the same time. The sauce took three minutes to make. Maybe not even right, right? Because I didn't want to cook it too much. Uh, Annie had made me some beautiful steamed rice. I had some bok choy, baby bok choy for the platter. Just pour that sauce right over top. You thicken that sauce with mm. uh, with a little cornstarch, and you're set. What's your taste of the week, Chef? Coconut
1: shrimp. My no wife. Way. <laughs> my wife made a no, no. Hold on. Coconut shrimp. You only rice. have a minute. You better get going. <laughs> so rice with sauteed some onion. Uh, not for the rice, but sauteed some onions. Add the shrimp. Um, what did you, oh, grated, uh, sliced ginger, uh, coconut milk, very simple, super, super delicious. Yeah. Absolutely forward flavor. I mean... Did you use some of that, did she use some of that Thai red curry paste or what did she No, use? no, no. She didn't even put any of, nothing, uh, oh, she had a little bit of jalapeno, so she sliced a couple of things and put that in there. So that was the heat we had. Mm-hmm. But it was so, you know, it's like the kind of dishes that you keep forgetting about and then you go, oh yeah, that sounds so delicious. When it's done right, don't buy that stuff already made, man. It's like, it takes, it takes 20 minutes to make a dish like this. I mean, it's... You don't know. shame
0: people to not buy from their favorite restaurant.
1: No, no, no. I don't mean in a restaurant. I mean in a store. You can buy the stuff already made, frozen, whatever, to- coconut shrimp. I'm like, there's no way this stuff's going to be... You're talking good. about
0: two different things. One is coconut shrimp that are breaded and deep fried. No, no, not that. And then you're talking... The other one is a... Coconut
1: sauce Coconut with just sauce raw shrimp in it. With, with, with shrimp yeah. and rice. Yeah. It was so yummy. Yeah. I mean, it's so simple. you know. It's, it, it's, it's just to me, it's, when you look at the weather outside right now, you just go, what can I have that's going to brighten my, my next two hours? You know what you can have to that brighten kind of your dish?
0: next two hours? We're going to talk about some savory lemon preparations. Ooh, I love that's that. That's going to brighten your next hours. Oh, I mean, yeah, absolutely. You betcha, baby. When we come back, it's Lemons on Cairo Radio. It's the Hot Stove Society Show, ninety-seven three FM. And we're back. It's the Hot Stove Society on Cairo Radio. We have uh, a small but mighty force here in the live audience studio of four people who are um, some are lifers. Here was here to class last night, here for the radio show this morning, and then doing the cocktail class. Tonight, That's wow! Dramatic. Yeah, you can't, are you the one who? I kept asked her, her if she was staying in the hotel. She's no, I stay at the Fairmont. <laughs> oh, excuse us, <laughs> Greg's, Greg's going to be happy to hear that. <laughs> I, I, we can't I, tell. I got married at the Fairmont Hotel uh, 38 years ago. Have you checked their bar, their new bar?
1: I have not. Oh my God, you have to go. Why? Pretty cool. Really Nancy. cool. What they've done at the Fairmont. Yeah.
2: Hi, Taryn. Well, it we sat anything? there
1: empty for a long time. Yeah. Well, you should see them. the lobby it looks very different. There is a bar in the middle, and then there is a little uh, what do you Secret. call it? Speakeasy. Yeah. Speakeasy. Yeah, I, really cool. I know all about it. What are you talking about? Yeah. You haven't been
0: there. It's then. time for to let lemons shine in your Lemon kitchen.
1: shine on Pamela, me. you wrote
0: this uh, this segment. Uh, what is uh, what was your purpose? What did are you just feeling a lack of brightness with the soggy weather we've been having? or what?
2: Exactly. And, well, you all know of my love for preserved lemons, but the real game-changer for me was when I saw you start grilling and browning them mm-hmm. because I love that crispy edge and what happens to the fruit when you add some heat to it. So I started thinking about all the other dishes uh, that would benefit a lemon addition in the winter. And the first recipe that came up was a really lemony risotto. Uh-huh. Mm. Uh, and I had not thought of adding it to rice, but when I dug in a little bit more, that is quite a common addition to Brighton rice dishes. So, right.
0: And what were they making it lemony with?
2: Parm. Still the but just ju-
0: juice or zest? Juice, or juice, juice,
2: okay. and, and uh, always a little zest mm-hmm. finish. And I just said, yeah, that's taking risotto on a." Yeah. Great I mean, if, winter direction.
1: If you're gonna make anything with lemon, the first advice is: before you cut your lemon in half and juice it, just zest it. You cannot go wrong with zesting your lemon, lemon and using first. that as an additional flavor into whatever you're doing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, you well, finish. It, it's the fruit of the flavor, right? In my opinion, right, right. Whereas the juice is
0: a little bit fruit, but mostly acid of the flavor.
1: Correct. Yeah. I'm, I'm with you 100 yeah. percent, Tom. And I think that it's a mistake that many. Uh, maybe not as much today but in the 80s and early 90s lemon was used or too much i think in many dishes and it was not used in a refined way it was used into a too much way kind mm-hmm. of idea and i think then lemon can certainly be very overpowering if you don't you know if you don't use it delicately because it's a, it's a delicate i mean it's a very strong flavor mm-hmm. so because of that delicateness is so let's required. start with the zest
0: then so for me uh, when I'm zesting a lemon, I, w- I want to think first about how I'm going to use the zest, right? So if I want to make a lemon marmalade, I'm going to use my big, thick zester. Uh, if I channeler. Wanna, huh? Channeler? A channeler, yeah. yeah. No, the channeler are the five little holes together, right? Or the, uh, No, the, I think the channeler, the channeler is, is the a one single for like a big martini. one. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, so I use a peeler for the, that. I don't use the channeler for that okay, so much, okay. but I use a peeler for a big, wide. Anyway, my point is I use the... Fine zest when I want a fine finish on my palate. Correct. Because the zest doesn't go away like the juice does, right? Correct. So um, maybe when I'm making a salad dressing or, you know, I don't want a stringy something left on my palate, I use the peeler and then julienne the zest when I want the lemon to be, the zest to be part of the meal. Yeah, you want the texture with the flavor. Let's say I'm making chicken piccata. Mm. Then I'll take it and I'll peel it off and I'll slice it thin and I'll saute the lemon zest like I would... Maybe the shallots yeah. or anything else yeah. in that dish. Uh, the capers. And and then it becomes, when I take a bite of my chicken piccata, I'll get a little snap of that lemon peel. And in a forward way, that changes everything, right? Yeah. It, the lemon becomes part of the flavor profile, whereas sometimes the juice or the fine zest sits in the background a little bit.
1: Right. How do you like to Well, I mean, I like lemon so many different ways, but one of my favorite ways to use it. And savory, I, though. We're talking savory. Yeah, savory. Yeah. I have... Uh, sweet and sour lemon that I've learned to make a long time ago. But uh, I think it's in my cookbook. I think you learned how to make it from me. Yeah, probably from you, yes, Tom. Mm -hmm. Because everything good that I make probably comes from you. I know, I know. (laughs) It's okay. See, I give him credit too. (laughs) Everybody's laughing. Why is that? No. Um, So I take lemon slices about an eighth of an inch thick uh, with the skin on. And I put them in a, uh, a brine. It's uh, um, your pickling brine. The one pin, two, three. pickling brine. Yeah. Thank you so much. <laughs> Can speak. And then I put that on the fire, very, very, very slowly, with parchment paper on top of the lemon, so it's soaked into the juice. And I cook it for very slowly, no boiling, for probably about two and a half, three hours, just gently on the on the stove. And then um, you end up with these beautiful lemon slices that are still whole but completely soft. And I've picked up all that brining flavor of sweet and sour. And you can put that in your refrigerator once it's cooled off. And you can use that for a month or two. It doesn't really go bad unless, unless you put it in the sunshine like anything else. Keep it in the fridge. But you can use that as a garnish to so many different things. So you can warm it up and put it on a piece of, you're talking about chicken piccata. You could do a chicken and put that on top of that. Mm-hmm. Anything you're going to do with a steamed fish, for example, like a piece of halibut, you put a couple of slices on top of that. You've got wonderful flavor added to your fish. Um, if you're doing a salad, you just do a little chopping of that. You chop it and put it in your dressing and mix it with all your vegetables and your, your greens, whatever you're going to be doing. So it is, I haven't, or if you're doing a toast of, uh, let's say a goat cheese toast, you know, toasted bread, goat cheese spread, put a little bit of that lemon chopped on top of that. It's so delicious. It's so simple, but it's one of those things where you had a goat cheese toast a minute ago, and now you've got a gochis toast. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Taking
1: it to the next one. Here summer. we go. I'll show you what a goat cheese <laughs> yeah. toast is going to be like. That's just
0: so lovely. Goat uh, the other way you can do it, uh, which I think Pamela was alluding to a little bit, which is um, at the Carlisle room, for example, we have a fried squid dish. Yeah. But when I put my squid into my dredge at the Carlisle, we have a cornmeal dredge. So it's uh-huh. cornmeal, cornstarch, and corn flour. Okay. Like masa, sure. Because I like the perfume of masa. Right. Uh, so that's my one third, one third, one third, and I take in thinly sliced lemons, and I take uh, shishito peppers, say, uh-huh. and I dredge everything together, and I cook the lemons like I cook the squid, like quick fried oh, yeah, lemons, yeah. and they get brown and crunchy and delicious, and they're that's a nice exactly counterpoint. What I was yeah. And the other way I like to use them as a, a change is I'll take a half a lemon. And I'll just cut that little stem end off so that it sits easily. I put sugar on top of the lemon, and then I use my torch, and I brulee the lemon, right. and I serve that with oysters. And I love that kind of
1: caramelized, sweetened lemon Yeah, I've with seen you salty do, I, I've oysters. I've seen you do that, and I've, t- and I've tested it, and I think it's delicious. It's a great way to make a lemon not be so stringent. Again, back to the same idea of the lemon being overpowering. You take that with an oyster, now you're not... It's a little bit more delicate on the oysters not to be so abrupt. And I think that works really well. Yeah, and really it goes
0: well, well with the, the salt there, yeah. the, the sweet salt, essentially. Yeah. So. No, it does, not.
1: There, it's not – people think, well, isn't that going to be too sweet? It's really not. Well, you know what else? I've used those lemon, that lemon technique before uh, as well, and uh, squeezing those lemon. Like if you do lamb chops, you do a lamb rack, for example, yeah. and you cut the lamb chops, and you just squeeze quickly. You, know, you just pass over the, the, the lamb with a little bit of that juice. That also is yeah really really delicious. That's one of my favorite things about
0: exploring Greek cooking is there's uh-huh. so much lemon used on roasting a lamb. You know, yeah. the, where you actually use a mop, a lemon, like a lemon vinegar mop, uh, and then brush as you're as you're roasting a yeah, leg of lamb, it's... you just brush it up, brush it up. You put it on potatoes, so the, yeah. the oven roasted potatoes with lemon with olives uh, with mm. olives and lemons.
1: Uh, I just find that Mediterranean use of lemon really well. They get they get lovely. Tons- In Greece, I think they have tons of olives, tons of lemon, and tons of tomatoes. So those three things together, mmm. And apparently they make you live longer,
0: according to... uh, Correct. Everyone says the Mediterranean diet. That's right. right. uh, Which
1: is why I had smoked salmon scramble for breakfast this (laughs) morning. That's why I live on a yacht in the Mediterranean with my chauffeur and my chef. Just kidding.
2: Good idea. (laughs) Let's do that.
1: It's called the Mediterranean diet. I live on a 100-foot yacht. (laughs) Uh, Okay, chef. You forgot broccoli
2: and lemon. Your fantasy. Oh, broccoli
1: and lemon. What a good idea. Thank you. Top notch. Those vegetables. Even kale. You know, you, you braise some kale, and then the last minute you just put in that zest of kale in there, and you put a quick squeeze of lemon. It really perks them up.
2: Yeah, we make a living on that uh, lemon-soaked kale. You know what a pie yeah. Those uh, <laughs> lemon
1: confit with
0: um, carrots. Well, that, well, that way the lemon actually is on for 20 minutes. It actually cooks the kale a little right. bit. That's what's important about that. Okay, we got to move on. Oh. Uh, Tara Mysek is here to explain uh, her flaky croissants, why they're so addictive. Yeah. And they certainly are. On Cairo Radio, it's the Hot Stove Society, 97.3 FM. Welcome back to the Hot Stove Society show on Cairo Radio. Chef is diving into the beautiful flaky croissants that uh, mm. Tara Mysek has brought over.
1: Man, this is delicious. This, is, uh, this I mean, has made it worth fighting traffic you know, for honestly, this morning. Honestly, between you and me, mm-hmm. the Dahlia Bakery has been around for quite some time, and mm-hmm. I've had the pleasure and the honor to partake in it almost every week. Um, and I've had many times myself a treat over there across the street. Uh-huh. So um, this is top. Top notch. Top notch. Top we notch. have next level. You, you have, you have a, you know, you've rise to the. Uh, Don't look at me. I haven't done a damn thing. <laughs> woman, your bakery, your bakery, it's your bakery. Yeah,
0: <laughs> I understand. Yes, you've I'm rise. very thankful for the your talented folks. Your bakery has rise to. Yes, I'm very. Whoever's talented.
1: doing this, and we know who does it. Chef, Just, what do
0: you call the person that uh, does the bread side of things in a pastry kitchen?
1: We call that the baker. Uh, the pardon me. We call them a. Vien. Vien no, no, the, the section. So, you know, in France there is boulangerie, which usually assumes. Chef, I wasn't looking for a listen, Wikipedia listen, version just of listen. this. Boulangerie, which usually means bread and viennoiserie. Viennoiserie is a section of the pastry shop that does all the dry uh, croissant, pain au chocolat, brioche, all that stuff is called viennoiserie. Once you get into a dough with a pastry cream and some fruits or whatever, that's patisserie. Okay. Oh, boy. And it's the
3: Viennoisie.
1: Uh,
0: Viennoiserie originally from Vienna. From Vienna, Vienna. right. Okay. Okay. Well, Tara Meissick is here, and she is the more than the Viennoisie. You are the boulangerie, Viennoisie. She, she's a boulanger. Okay, of the Dahlia Bakery. I'm Correct. awesome. Boulanger. I'm go she's that. awesome is what she's trying to say, right? Yeah, she's right? awesome. Uh, she is awesome, and the thing that I'm most impressed about with you, Tara, is that you, when you take on a task of making a great croissant, you are like a dog with a bone. You are just like you will not let it go until you're totally uh, comfortable with the product, and then you kind of take a next step where you kind of, unlike some pastry chefs I find who are more classical, uh, they won't step out of their cookie cutter mold because it, this is the way it's done, and that's the only way it's done. I feel like you're pretty good about. Maybe trying out some fun stuff because you don't have that history.
4: Yeah, uh, I mean, I've been a hot foods, uh, I've been a hot foods uh, chef for majority of my career at this point. So uh, every day going into the kitchen has always just been like, what can I create with what I have in front right. of me? And yeah. I, I don't like to limit myself, at what I'm capable of. Uh, and I always like to take recipes that are like set in stone this is exactly how this recipe is always supposed to be done mm-hmm. and i always try to make it my own and cuz what i know isn't what like what everybody else is taught a lot of the stuff that i've been doing over uh especially over the past 6 months uh, over at dahlia is all been self taught mm-hmm. uh especially with this croissants like i I worked for the bread team right before everything shut down. and When I,
0: David was still there, yeah, right? When yeah. David
4: was there. And I have always, like, when I took on this task, my goal was to get as good as David. Uh, I know that I don't have enough talent to say that I'm better than David, and I, it's going to take me a long time.
0: You don't need to be better than David, no, yes. But
4: I, I wanted to match the quality and consistency that they were producing beforehand, and I got to see him uh, make the croissants. One day, and all that little bit of information that I took, I absorbed as much as I could, and I've been trying to put that excellence into what I do on a
1: daily basis. Well, you've achieved some very high level here. Yeah, and Terry's a
0: pretty good judge about all that. Uh, he, he loves a good croissant. Uh, so, take us through how do you make the perfect flaky croissant? And I know it's a, it's a process because humidity matters. You know, every day is something a little bit different, right? Oh, yeah. So, just generally, how do you make the perfect Croissant.
4: Uh lots of butter. Y- start yeah. off with really good, high fat quality butter. Uh, you want, uh, I want to say it's eighty three to eighty five percent. butter So that'd be Plugra
0: kind of yeah. kind of uh,
4: butter, European or French butter. Anytime you can get that, that is where you should always start. Uh, any American, unsalted, yeah, unsalted. Any uh, Americanized butter, unsalted is just not going to have that fat quality and that content. Uh, and the butter will tend to break when you go to roll it out. So you need that really high fat uh, content so you can get a really nice, even layer of butter throughout the whole process.
0: And when, when Tara says it's going to break, she means it's going to separate and yeah. you're going to work the, the moisture and fat away from each other. Whereas. Uh, like a like a dairy gold butter is probably around seventy percent butter fat, whereas a plugra or a, this european style butter is eighty two to eighty five percent fat so
1: there is a big difference well there's also yeah because the the difference is and it adheres much stronger stronger to the flour and oh, yeah. it sticks and it stays together it's binding and the and other
0: thing is our, we we measured our butter percentage of weight what uh, before you started doing oh, this yeah. it was sixty seven percent butter in the recipe.
1: Wow,
0: 67% yes. butter.
4: Uh, every time I make a batch, it's uh, 3.6 kilos of dough to three pounds of butter. Yeah. Uh, wow. And, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a heavy amount of butter. Yeah. And that's what I believe definitely lends to making this an amazing product. So, so think,
1: yeah, in the end, you can totally taste it. I mean, you, you know, the finishing, the rolling in the mouth of when you're eating it and all that, you can totally taste the difference between that and a much cheaper or lesser croissant. And and everybody should owe it to themselves to try neck-to-neck those differences because once you do, you go, you know, I think I like the one with the butter better. (laughs) Because with butter, it's always better. Okay, take us through the process.
4: Uh, Well, yeah, it's a heavy amount of butter, good quality butter fat in it. Uh, And the other thing that's really unique about ours, uh, it's not necessarily a croissant dough. It's more of a pretzel dough. Uh, for uh, the product, uh, there's uh, barley malt in the recipe, which adds to a really nice oh, wow. uh, maltiness that you can get. It, it's very subtle, but it comes through greatly, especially if, if I bake them the way that I always want to bake them, but I, I always hold back, is just taking them a little darker, and that always helps bring out that barley malt in there. Uh, but yeah, it's... Very interesting. Yeah, right? Wow. I, that's why I've always found... Uh, this recipe to be such a unique recipe, uh, right. and I've always I really wanted to get back to being able to produce these. Uh, but yeah, it's starting off with good quality butter. Uh, the dough we mix uh, day before, we freeze uh, for a couple hours just to keep the dough from going too far and being too active. Let that sit overnight. So
1: in the dough, there
4: is flour, yeast. Yep, flour, yeast, uh, sugar, the barley malt milk uh and lots of love uh and then uh yeah that's a a day process we start that the day before i'll make my uh butter blocks i'll pound out three pounds of butter and get it all real nice and flat uh and then i will let all that sit overnight i'll go straight into the lamination process uh the next morning uh i'll roll out the dough uh Put my butter in there. I'll trim uh, the edges off, uh, and I'll put that on top so I have a nice even level, and I don't have um, any like bulge of the dough on the sides. Right. Uh, so I get a real nice even, even. clean uh, fold every time that I do it, and I'll trim it every single time that I go and do folds. And I'll start off with a four fold, uh, and then I do two three folds, which is one more uh, extra fold than most people do. Right, that's
0: and th- yeah. uh, ten fold. Yeah, ten times. Wow. Well, essentially, you're getting ten times the number of folds. Yeah, because you're folding four. So, if you were to think about that in layers, let's like think about it, say, as in filo layers. Right. How many layers does that equal to when you think about the way that it's like a formal fold, like puff yeah. pastry fold? It's a formal process oh. that has. Like two hundred layers, right? Yeah, yeah. That,
1: that's also what they call it when you raise that puff pastry kind of uh, kind of dough. They call it mille in French, mm-hmm. which is a thousand, thousand leaves.
4: A thousand leaves, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and normally it's just a, a fourfold and a threefold on most croissants. But I found that when I do that extra fold on there, I'm getting a lot more volume. I'm getting a lot more flakiness, and I'm still getting a really nice quality product. The, the dough itself on it. Uh, you can taste the butter throughout the layers. You get much finer; uh, it's much flakier and it's really soft. Uh, it's softer on the mouth. Uh, when I wasn't doing that, when I first started, uh, I definitely had more of a chew to the dough. And these have just been coming out so excellent. This way, I'm I'm,
1: I'm uh, so with you on that. I can totally understand the, the the feeling of that, and also the end product so much lighter, which is which oh, yeah. is so cool. I mean, it's like having that raw dough in the middle of a is I know, it's so disappointing. Yeah, it's oh, very yeah. disappointing.
4: And then, yeah, after I do my layers, I roll it out and decide which, uh, what do I need the most at this point. And it's usually almond croissants. Uh, right now, the everything uh, croissant that we're doing is tending to be the, uh, the big popular seller right now. So I'm going to be bulking up on that. And then, yeah, they get proofed overnight one more time. And it's all about the proofing process and the final product. All right, so
0: we're going to stop right there because I want to finish these in the next segment uh, because we're going to make some jam to go on them verbally. But I want to finish this whole conversation because we're going a little too fast. These are – it's a very technical product. Oh, yeah. So let's let's come back to that for a minute and not rush through it. It's Cairo Radio. You're listening to the Hot Stove Society show from the beautiful Hotel Andra, 4th and Virginia, downtown Seattle. Uh, the best landmark, though, is right across the street from the Dahlia Bakery where <laughs> Tara Misik works. Uh, I'm Cairo. See you later. Be back in a minute. We are back in the kitchen here at the Hot Stove Society on Cairo. Uh, we continue our conversation with Tara Misik, the uh, chef baker over at the Dahlia Bakery. And we were in the middle of making croissants, and we were rushing to get done. So we're going to step back a second. We've got the dough. We've turned it. We've layered it. We've folded it. We've put it into the refrigerator overnight. And let's pick it up from there uh, before we make a little marmalade to put on top of it.
4: Oh, yeah. Uh, Well, from there, after it's been proofing overnight, the first thing that I do every morning, I get my proof box on. I pull the croissants out. So you've
0: already rolled them.
4: Yep, they're already rolled. I shape them uh, same day that I laminate them, uh, cut them, get them all ready, and then I'll set them out uh, overnight in our refrigerator. I'll pull them out first thing in the morning. It's the very first thing that I do before I look at anything else Uh because. They take a while to proof, uh, especially with the, the cold uh, that we've been having. because right, there's
0: so much butter in them. Yeah.
4: yeah. Uh, during the summer, it was like an hour and a half proof time. They're ready to go, pop them in the oven. Uh, but right now, they're taking about two and a half to three hours every day. And That's where the baker gets up at 1 a.m. <laughs> at 2 o'clock every day, yeah. alarm goes off. Oh. <laughs> Try to break it. <laughs> But yeah, we'll pull them out first thing in the morning. We get them into the proof box, get them going for about three hours uh, before we bake them off. And uh, in our proof box, I have to kind of rotate them out because it's not necessarily the most even heat. Uh, but I'm looking. Are you saying my proof box sucks? I no, think so. I'm saying that <laughs> I'm saying that I put so much stuff in there in the morning <laughs> <laughs> that I have to keep everything kind of rotated because uh, they're trying you know, to. No, they actually have sandwiches with a fan in it. Yeah. Okay, so now they're proofed and they're ready for the oven yeah. at, what, 425? Uh, no, oh. they, uh, they go in at 350. Uh, uh-huh. Yeah, right before I get them into the oven, I'm looking to see the separation of some of the layers. You have to see just a little bit of the layers kind of breaking apart and seeing that uh, like all the way through the whole croissant. you uh-huh. got to see it from top to bottom, just so, a little little layer in between opening up.
1: This is actually a very important step to not skip on. Because it will be the difference between a very flaky, light and fluffy versus a dense. Gummy, yeah. Yeah, uh, croissant. Uh, yeah, you
4: have to make sure that it's completely proofed all the way, and that's one that's been one of the hardest uh, things for me to identify, with no real croissant uh, background. Uh, but at this point, we got it right on the money. Uh, we're looking to make sure that none of the butter has leaked out. If the butter leaks out. It's not going to rise to its fullest uh, potential. The butter is going to seep out uh, onto the sheet pan, and it, that butter will then absorb back into the croissant and be a really heavy and dense croissant. So it, that's one of those. But the it'll biggest, also be
0: a very greasy bottom yeah, croissant. Very yeah, very
4: greasy bottom, and yeah. it's, not, it's not good food yeah. at that point. But, yeah, we're looking for that proper rise, and then we get them into the oven at 350. You, you brush them with egg wash? Uh, we we actually use a tiny little squirt bottle uh, of egg wash Uh the almond ones get a little bit of sliced almond on top the plains are just sprayed that everything gets our everything seasoning that we
0: do Did on You there. see that chef we have an everything uh, bagel but it's a croissant <laughs> Right and uh, it is
1: fabulous It's
4: yeah. classic <laughs> It's so okay. good uh,
1: No but uh, hey, explain the the reason you don't brush is so you don't want to break down that proofing you don't yeah, want to you don't want to re-soften
4: yeah you don't want to knock any of that proofing you don't want to Bust any of those layers and so it's just a real quiet uh so
0: what are you spraying what's in the spray
4: uh it's half and half uh egg yolks and water uh just a real okay. quick uh mix on that so, yeah uh, they get sprayed down uh 350 uh for about 19 minutes it's been about halfway through and they come out beautiful puffed airy and light Get those onto uh, some cooling racks so it's not sitting in any kind of residual butter
0: that may or may not be there. And to me, here's the most important thing, Chef. Be, be I'm, patient. I'm, I knew you they have to cure. Yes. Um, right? Just like a loaf of bread. When you yeah. cut a hot loaf of bread right out of the oven, what happens? You mush it and it gets yep. all gross in the center. Lose all the Same food. with croissant. You yeah. have to step back. Any bread that I've ever baked, like
4: when I first started baking, I was always like, as soon as it's come out of the oven. I know. I you really just want to grab it learned that from annie uh-huh. uh uh but yeah it has to sit just so those those layers set and so when you cut in half you get those beautiful separation you get all that airiness and lightness and it it makes or breaks
0: the perfect and if massage. you if you want to eat it warm which a lot of people do even though that it's i do technically I do. not french to do that but if you do want to eat it warm you're better off to let it set, let it cure, get all the way to a cool, oh, yeah. Yeah. and then pop it in for a minute or two into yeah, a hot yeah, yeah. oven. But you got to let that process happen Correct. when it comes out. It's not hot out of the oven. It's it's
1: rewarmed, basically. All right, Chef,
0: let's make a quick marmalade to go on these because um,
1: i that's my favorite place
0: to have marmalade is on a croissant. So
1: blood orange is what you were yes, talking about? Yes, sir. We're going to take some blood orange, and we're going to cut them. Uh, we're going to take the skin with it. So we're going to take the blood orange, cut it in... From the top and the bottom, you know, just get rid of the of the End and caps. And caps. And then just take your orange and then cut it into one-inch long pieces. So you're going to take your orange, you're going to cut it in half, and you're going to take your knife and cut moons like… Half moons. Half moons. And then you're going to cut that into chunks. Okay. Because you don't want big pieces of, right. no. of, of oranges. So you're going to take that, put it in a pan, add a little bit of sugar… And if you have a little bit of juice of the blood orange, which you did earlier when you were keeping the zest for your cocktail and you were squeezing the blood orange on the side. But I thought we were using the whole orange in it. We are, but on top of it, oh. I'm putting one juice of blood orange. What about, about orange. A Cointreau or Grand Marnier no, no, or anything hold on, like that? Hold on. Yeah, so you take that and you put it on the fire and you cook it very slowly. That's important. Only because if you cook it too fast, number one, you have a big chance to burn it. Two, you want to make sure that your sugar really, really breaks down the oranges with it. You know, right. it gets together. And also, don't forget you have the skin on. That skin is bitter. It needs to be translucent. So before. it needs to become cooked gently. Yeah. And also, the more gentle you are, the less of accentuation of bitterness you'll get. Is there enough pectin in that blood orange or do you have to add pectin? No, I don't put any pectin in my, in my jam ever. No, I actually I never put pectin in any of my jam, to be honest. Okay. Uh, lemon juice, by the way, if you if you need to have a certitude of pectin, you just squeeze a little lemon juice in your orange in your marmalade, and you have instant pectin. Pectin, basically. Tara, you make the croissant. Um,
0: when you watch the end user eat it, it's very exciting, I'm sure, right? Because <laughs> you've worked so hard. I hate watching. You hate
5: watching people eat
4: it. <laughs> Do you cringe? Uh, a little bit. I, I. Uh, Honestly, I love making food for people. Uh-huh. I don't really care to sit and watch. Well, that's the shocking verse, so. to me. That's shocking.
0: <laughs> Okay, so uh, let's oh. say you're eating it. What is your favorite thing to put on a beautiful, buttery, flaky croissant that you have made?
4: Honestly, nothing, nothing other than a, a shot of espresso on the side. Okay. Uh, I like to just dip a little bit if necessary, but a croissant and coffee. Perfect breakfast, in my opinion, all the time. And, you know, if, well, my you're judgmental self
0: is the thing that I can't stand the most on a great croissant like yours is when people slather butter on it. Oh. They have no idea there how much butter no is There yeah. yeah. yes, the is no need of butter on the croissant. Not if it's I a good croissant. I mean, that's a judgmental me. I know everyone can do whatever they want, but it like breaks my heart because I know the effort made to make that butter so integrated into your dough and everything that to slather a big pile of butter on it is...
1: Sinful. <laughs> and to finish on the marmalade, once it's cooked, that orange marmalade is when you put the Grand Marnier at the end. Oh, really? So you, yes, so you can actually really taste it. Because yeah. mm-hmm. if you put it at the beginning, it's going to dissipate, and you're only going to have a little accentuation of orange. But if you put it at the end, you're really going to test it. Anyway, thank you so much to Tara Mysek for explaining yeah, thank you. how she gets her
0: beautiful, flaky, addictive croissants. Up next on the big show, uh, we're going to... Uh, Talk to the folks from Babar oh. Green, the new yeah. uh, version of Babar uh, in Seattle here on Cairo Radio. It's the Hot Stove Society. So stay with us on 97.3 FM. And we're back. It's the Hot Stove Society kitchen on Cairo. The chef in the chapeau, this a.k.a. Is. audience uh, motivator. Yes. is here. Tom Douglas is here. We have uh, old pals here today. Chris Michael of Babar Green. And of course, uh, Eric Bond of our favorite, the Babar Bar. And <laughs> <laughs> Babar. I, I like Babar Bar.
3: <laughs> and of course, uh, your shop up on 19th is still there, right? Uh, shop 19 Monsoon Stew there, alive and kicking. Oh, and yeah. East side too? Bellevue still? Bellevue as well. Wow. I mean, it's it's been a challenging two years. Yeah. But, and uh, actually, we reopened uh, Bobar South Lake Union. Uh, it's obviously the traffic, as you know, gentlemen, diminished yeah. more, less than half.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And and right now, too, this beginning of the year with the new Omicron stuff. Uh,
3: we were doing fine until the last five days. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you can All see. All across the city. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. Starting to feel like pre, pre-pandemic times. Absolutely. Like... Uh, the week before we closed is what it's <laughs> feeling like. Um, tell us about uh, Babar. How's it doing? Uh, you've got uh, three or four now. Um, it's my favorite of your group, oh, although thank you. only because I could never get into Monsoon. But, um, but I run into Babar up there on 12th in Capitol Hill area, Seattle U area. Uh, that's probably the one I go to the most.
3: You know, Babar was born uh, right after recession, the recession, financial. Uh, Meltdown two thousand and eight, yeah, yeah, and at that time, you know, after cooking a monsoon, I always wondering where can I eat. God, either Chinatown or Dicksburger mm-hmm. uh, or Thirteen Coins or go to. Uh, yeah, Pal- I haven't heard kitchen. you went to one of my restaurants. <laughs> no, Pal- you Pal- big jerk. <laughs> <laughs> always hang out at Palace Kitchen. <laughs> in yeah, the yeah. Old days. I'm glad
0: that came up in the rear. <laughs>
3: <laughs> so uh, we figure, let's do something. Yeah. Uh, more affordable, not in a cheap way, but lots of uh, noodles and a little bit of protein. Mm-hmm. And as you know, uh, Tom and Theory, uh, Monsoon, more of a family style restaurant that uh, we want to give to the city, but God, you have to use all these expensive protein and lots of protein. Mm-hmm. So we figured let's do something affordable and all. Day all night and uh, you can spend fifteen dollar or one hundred fifty dollar. It's up to you. Yeah,
1: I've well, never, I've never, I've been there. I don't know two hundred times and I have never once spent fifteen dollars. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what's going on here. Yeah. <laughs> How do um, you spend fifteen bucks in your restaurant?
3: <laughs> just have a bowl. of fun. Yeah. I tell
1: what I do, but there's always like, oh, maybe I have the. You got hmm. macaroons on the way out or
0: <laughs> in or whatever. Uh, I fell in love with your food, of course, at Saigon. Not at Saigon, but at Monsoon. And um, I've been a big fan ever since, as you know. Uh, We have often talked about the challenges of running restaurants, uh, and certainly more so now in Seattle than ever before. Uh, How are you doing with all the the challenges? You know, minimum wage just went up again, and we're doing all the things. uh, I know we're having hero pay and all sorts of things to try and mitigate some of the damage.
3: As you know, the minimum wage just went up uh, January 1st once again. And um, we meet with our bookkeeper on a monthly basis. And uh, we noticed the food costs creep up drastically. Oh, yeah. You know, as you know. It's about
0: beef. 17% is ours right now. It's, it's, oh, it's my gosh. up, yeah. Oh, my gosh.
3: And so we thought, let's take a hit and not increase the price immediately uh, and just observe that cost, and then we'll see. But as you know, the consumer will start to see prices raise across the board. Yeah. I would say the last year or to now, uh, our price gone up probably about 20%. Yeah. And, um, and
1: you know what? It needs to go up another 10 to 15% just to cover what's happening now.
3: Yes, and especially this restaurants like yours and ours, we have medical. And yeah. then this year, we're going to uh, give and share with our staff for 1K uh, because… We cooks and I know how hard it is. We know how hard it is. Sophie Ugh. and I, look at these folks being with us for ten years or longer. And we said we need to take care of these guys. Yeah, you know? for and sure.
0: That's we'll- the best part that's come out of the pandemic. You know, kitchen wages are up twenty five percent, and it's fantastic. Yeah, uh, i as a former cook, absolutely. Yeah, I, you, you uh, under-paid, underpaid.
3: Oh, absolutely. Ten dollar
1: yeah. an hour now, minimum yeah. twenty. Yeah, how about yeah. seven dollars a month? <laughs> <laughs> a month. That was when I started, when I was 14 years old. Yeah. it was. No, oh. that's the good side of the pandemic, I think, is that it has I increased. I think it's better ba- for our Oh, sure. definitely.
0: Yeah, and and yeah. people are recognizing the value of uh, that side of the house, of the restaurants. And so that's, that part is awesome. I know I was doing a, a segment on evening uh, yesterday here at the hot stove, and I was using pork butt, which is, a you know, in many Asian restaurants, prob- probably yours, yeah. and certainly yeah. mine. It's a staple. Like if you're making Italian sausage for Serious Pie, you, you're grinding up pork butt, right? Yeah, absolutely. And it was now three seventy a pound, compared to just one year ago, it was one fifty nine or two fifty nine a pound, and one year before that, it was one fifty nine a pound. So just that one commodity item alone, astonishing.
3: Absolutely. What, what's and happened? You look at what make it worse: all the container coming in from Southeast Asia, Vietnam, uh-huh. or all of them, the container gone up by ten thousand dollar per yeah. container. Per yeah. container, yeah. yes. And then the uh, they quarantine them at the port in Vietnam or even here as we speak. So we we have been scrambling just to get fish sauce. Oh my gosh, yeah. Alone, and now fish sauce gone up by almost triple the price. And then rice paper. So you look at a simple imperial rice paper gone up. We have to scramble around, driving around grocery store to secure those rice paper wrap, and then mung beans you noodles, know hard <laughs> to find. And like you said, Tom, pork butt. Oh, man, it's just 10 components that we have to deal with. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting time. Uh, certainly as volatile
0: as any time uh, in the 40 years I've been running restaurants, uh, it is as volatile as any time. Uh, I mean, there were moments in time, like after 9-11, there were moments in time where, like, oh, my God, what are we going to do with 9-11? There's nobody... In the world, out on the street, uh, so you think about that, but that was only a three week road correct
1: I think then the, the necessity that needs to happen is to rise prices for the consumer to realize and to you can't just keep doing the way you've been doing it and not raise the, and have all these increases and not raise prices that doesn't work like that well it's interesting you know if we're trying that with our spice rub line right now, and you know I
0: get a, a communicate from one of the, the the largest grocery chain in the country saying, no, we're not going to accept your price increase. I get to communicate from people that we know right over in Issaquah saying that your price increase is ridiculous. We sent them a, a list of why it had to go up by 20%, cardboard's up 51%, you know, just everything. everything, shipping containers, if we can get the jars, the next seals on the jar. And then they just, no, we're not going to pay it. So you either... Which, we, which we're going to have to do is just say, okay, we're not going to sell to you anymore because we can't afford to. We're not going to sell to you and lose money. When we come back, the whole next segment is going to be about Bob Bar Green. Uh, Chris Michael is here. He's the chef of Bob Barr Green. And uh, we are going to see what it is that you're doing in the vegan world. He's an owner as well, Bob Bar oh, Green. Oh, congratulations, Chris. I, I didn't s- know that. Chef owner. Love it. On Cairo Radio, it's the Hot Stove Society Show 97.3 FM. We're back in the Hot Stove Society kitchen here at 4th in Virginia, downtown Seattle, Hotel Andra. And uh, we are joined by Eric Bond and uh, chef owner Michael or Chris Michael of the new Babar Green. Uh, Chris, welcome to the show. Thanks. Babar Green, tell us about it and t- why is it different than Babar Restaurant, which we all know and love.
5: Uh, Babar Green is just a simple grab-and-go or plant- plant-based grab-and-go concept, uh, primarily Southeast Asian food. And we're just trying to focus, obviously, more on sustainability and, uh-huh. and servicing the vegetarian and vegan community. And where are you located? Uh, we ha- we're transformed the old baking area of in Babar South Lake Union, and we're just uh, right attached to um, the location.
1: Okay. Yeah. So, so you're, you're in the same spot. Over there on have- Terry Avenue.
5: Yeah, yeah, well, over on Terry, and we're just so literally you, right next door. You
1: have Baba on one side, and then you have Baba Vegan on the other side? Mm-hmm. I'll get it. Yeah. Get it. So you have two of them. Let's go. Cool.
0: Well, uh, we all know, and I think, Terry, you and I have been trying for uh, quite a while now. You had a vegetarian side of your menu for years at Rovers forever. It's, is it, uh, Chris, are you feeling like it's the coming wave, or do you feel like it's an option that people want to have a, when they feel like it?
5: I think it's a little bo- bit yeah. of both. You know, I think different customers want to eat healthier or vegetarian or plant-based for different reasons. Uh-huh. Uh, we definitely get you know, the whole gamut of customers coming through.
1: Yeah, I think it's. I think the option was before. I think we've reached a point where it's more than just an option anymore. It's more like, I think. I think that yes, it might be a little bit difficult at the beginning, or you know, to expose yourself to that. But yeah. once the word gets out, I, I don't think it would be an issue, especially on the west coast or in Seattle. I, don't look, I think that's not really an issue. I think that's definitely a follow-up. When you think the. You know, I was telling that the other day at, at Rovers, we used to have 20% of our sale. Very often was the five-course vegetarian menu. We're That's talking, 30 years ago. We're talking fine yeah. dining. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like there's no way in the world you can convince me it's just an option anymore. It's much more than that.
5: Yeah, some of the best restaurants in the world, you know, yeah. are, are going completely
0: different. Right Madison. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, tell us about some of the dishes on your menu. You brought us a chickpea miso eggplant today mm-hmm. uh, It was some red curry paste and some, was that nook cham or was that, mm-hmm. yeah. Tell us about some of the dishes and, and why yours are different and why you would use chickpeas, say, instead of soybeans um, for your miso.
5: Yeah, so, I mean, in developing this menu, you know, I love Southeast Asian food or Asian food in general, and there's not very many, I, I feel like, uh, vegetarian versions of, of those restaurants out there and the ones that are oftentimes and um, just don't taste very good mm-hmm. or just don't have a lot of flavor. So, I kind you know, I wanted to work backwards and – have dishes that people knew, and then kind of reverse-engineer them mm-hmm. so that there was kind of a basis for similarity. Right. And then, kind of like the tofu
1: turkey started.
5: The, yeah, yeah, absolutely. The trend then, of people
1: wanting to eat vegan. and mm-hmm. Yeah.
5: But then, yeah, and so in developing some of these things like the laksa, uh, you know, I had to first start with the red curry paste mm-hmm. to start from there. And then in order to do uh, the crispy rice salad, I first had to, you know, figure out how to make a, a, a vegan fish sauce. Right. And so... That's, you know, that's been a, a long process, and honestly, the pandemic and having that time off to, to test and develop was, was a benefit.
0: What was the light bulb moment when you were making the vegan fish sauce? What, what ingredient gave you that? Ah, this is the end flavor I'm looking for. Oh, I can't tell you that. But. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> but there definitely was a light bulb. Moment. No, was there a light bulb moment? There was, yeah. yeah. you know, is it are... like like you know, the wheat germ is the bacon moment, right? Is mm-hmm. the ve- vegan uh, bacon moment? I didn't. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's wheat germ. I don't know. But no,
5: I'll, I'll have to experiment with wheat germ now.
0: <laughs> so, um, and then also, I think you're, you're a little bit limiting in a vegan restaurant. You don't do nuts either.
5: Yeah, you know. So we do baked chickpeas, and I and I bake them off to kind of simulate the the fatty or crunchiness of a peanut but uh-huh. outside of that you know i'm kind of relying on the sauces and the textures to kind of shine
1: uh-huh i think the word of vegetable once you start getting into it especially as a chef mm-hmm. it's so incredible i mean there's so many so many possibilities it's never ending mean, mm-hmm. you can cook a carrot a million ways you uh-huh. can cook kale you can cook i mean rice rice totally. is actually a great base to start so you already have an adventure. So is noodle. Mm-hmm. You know, you have the vessel to start with. So, I mean, look at the Pacific Northwest, just mushroom, all those different things that we have. It's just, I don't know. It's a great it's a great place to be to do that, I think.
5: Yeah, and then, and, you know, when Eric and I were developing this concept, we also wanted to have a smaller footprint in terms of uh, the startup costs. So we developed this with induction in mind and a convection oven. So that's... So both of those don't need a big
0: hood system, yeah, right? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Awesome. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's cool. Uh, you must use a million kinds of noodles. Uh, the ones that I find the most difficult for me to work with are the Korean sweet potato noodles.
5: Oh, yeah, those are great.
0: They're great, but I struggle with them for some reason just as a – maybe it's just my Caucasianness or something, but <laughs> I just don't – you know what I'm saying? I just don't – I don't get them. You know, I understand lo mein. I understand rice noodles, yeah. but I don't understand the sweet potato noodles. How to make it something that I want to sit down to?
5: I don't know. Trial and error, I guess. Yeah, that's but it, yeah, right? I think people always under sesame oil their japchae. That's one thing I've ah, always noticed. Uh-huh. Just, you know, you have to have a ton of sesame oil, and then outside of that, uh, I think people also when they cook it, they add too much water or too little water. So it's
0: I'm a too mucher. It's just, just a big water. soggy mess. <laughs>
5: Yeah. What are some of your other favorites? Let's see. What else do we have on the menu? So we're going to be putting a green curry on the menu. So I have a green curry paste that we've been working on. Um, The Dan Dan noodles have been really popular, which is. always Yeah. yeah, um, Which is, you know, that was one of the first dishes I kind of worked backwards on because it's such a simple, uh, well, I guess the the sauce itself is a vegetarian sauce. And so all I really had to do was figure out a way to make that. So crumble. explain
1: what the dandan Dan noodle is.
5: Uh, dandan noodles are traditionally like a cold sesame noodle salad or peanut uh, as well. But you know, I didn't want to use peanuts, so right. and then it gets served with. Well, peanuts
0: are not really nuts. You could you could use those, I guess. So, but
5: yeah. they're the ones that people are most allergic <laughs>
1: to.
5: <laughs> so, yeah. Um,
1: then you yeah, serve then, with all kinds of greens next to it.
5: Yeah, blanched mustard greens, pickled mustard green and then um a black bean and beyond meat crumble mm. like saute.
1: I want some of that for lunch. We've had croissant, we've had everything this morning. I mean My daughter was making
0: a map 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 tofu.
1: Ma-pao tofu mm-hmm. the other night with ground pork and I was
0: thinking what it would be like with the uh, impossible meat oh, in good. there. Oh, it's
5: you can't, you can't tell the difference. You can't tell the yeah, difference. You can't tell the difference. So uh,
0: not to, I don't want to belabor this because people that listen to our show know that I'm not a big fan of impossible meat. In, mm. in with the idea that a manipulated vegetable thing like that to me is not really vegetarian or it's more like scientific manipulations. Why <laughs> not just use real vegetables or, or something? But um, but I do understand people love it and eat it. They buy it at my restaurant. And what's your favorite Use that you found with some of the imitation meats out there.
5: Probably the dandan dan topping. Pro- yeah, oh, yeah. yeah, I mean, and the nice thing about Asian food is it's oftentimes not focused around the meat mm-hmm. like you know other cuisines are, and so you're only putting an ounce or two or at a time. And so
1: it's true for most most country who don't mm-hmm. have a flux of meat. Like this is probably the only country in the world where there is so much meat as a. I mean, meat here is the main course. Yeah, and then maybe if you're lucky, you get a vegetable with it. Where in the rest of the world, it's vegetable first because it's cheaper. Or yeah, starch. Oh, you know, and, and starch, yeah. yeah. But in most cases, it's vegetable and, or rice or noodles or whatever. And, mm. and then you have, if you're lucky, you get a piece of meat with it. <laughs> yeah.
0: Okay, and the last thing, you brought us delicious coffee here. We only have a minute left. You brought us some coffee to taste. Tell us about that.
5: Uh, yeah. We, You know, I wanted to have a, a house-made brev- beverage on the menu. And obviously, a Vietnamese coffee is pretty iconic. But... Uh, during It also the research. has
0: condensed milk in it. No. Typically. It, yeah, it typically yeah, has yeah. condensed
5: milk in it. But, you know, again, I think technology is catching up with uh, consumers and coming across to doing research. You know, I came to find this really great condensed coconut milk product.
1: And so, it tastes, you know. it doesn't taste over coconut. No, it doesn't. Yeah, yeah it's... it's just, that's why I was amazed by it. It doesn't taste like coconuts. I mean, obviously, the more
5: you use, the more coconutty it tastes. Right, but it's right, it's right. really a good substitute for uh, uh. condensed
3: milk.
0: Because yeah. so, so often I find some of the coconut uh, substitutions, they're just overpowering in their mm-hmm. coconut, especially the fat, mm-hmm. coconut flavor. Right. So. All right, get out there and try the new Babar Green. It's down in South Lake Union. If you remember where my restaurants used to be in South Lake Union, both uh, Brave Horse and Cuoco, just go about three blocks north. Corner of Terry and... Republican.
5: Carrying Republican, yeah. Carrying Republican,
0: yeah. So Eric Bond's been our guest. Chris Michael has been our guest. Uh, when we come back, we're going to talk muscles here at the Hot Stove Society Show, 97.3 FM. <laughs> Time to flex your muscles here at the Hot Stove Society Show. Oh, yeah. Cairo. Oh, yeah. You know, Chef, uh, we've been cooking muscles like crazy down in the, at Seatown. It's uh, that time of the year. It is that time of the year. Mussels are out and about, and they're at their peak right now, especially the black mussels from Pen Cove area. Huh? Not the black. the uh, We call them the blue mussels. They're not really blue, but they have a blue tint sometimes, right. Right. whereas the black mussels are the Mediterranean variety that come out of the south sound, okay. and that uh, can be terrific in the summertime. But the mussels out of Pen Cove are best in the cold weather months. Correct. So, uh, and that's the one I'm familiar with. Well, that's the local. I mean, it's really the local Correct. variety, too. So. So uh, mussels, uh, at the store these, day, these days, I mean, one of the technologies that this uh, Pen Cove Mussel Farm, Ian and Rall up there have developed is that beardless mussel, right? So used to be when I first started, every time you ordered mussels in, you had to de-beard them, take Correct. that kind of brillo paddish little thing that comes out the side, which is what they use to attach themselves to any sort of anything that they Correct. can get onto, a rock, a uh,
1: pier, when I was. Uh, when the I bottom was, of a ship. When I was 16 years old, I worked in Le mont Saint Michel in France, mm-hmm. in Normandy. Every morning, every morning, six days a week, 50 pound bag in the sink of tiny muscle, like black. You know the one they have in France, mm-hmm. those small black muscle. You had to clean and beard every single. That was my first job. I tell and you what thing, were there? Maybe 100 to a pound? Oh, well, I mean, a, a 25 kilo bag
0: was about yeah big yeah but i was just thinking how many muscles to a pound
1: uh probably if i had to guess no not a, not a hundred but 50. i would say 50 yeah, yeah for sure so anyway it was um, it was um, that's that's my longest hardest memory of cleaning muscles but now
0: you don't have to do it anymore they have a machine that goes through and tears that out correct the only problem with that is that it limits their shelf life right correct uh and uh, so that's just something to think about but Typically, when you go up to a grocery store or down to Mutual Fish or places like that where you buy your mussels, Wajamaya, uh, they come beardless. You still have to check them. Correct. And then you also want to check the outside of the muscle right. uh, for bits and pieces hanging on that you want to just scrape off.
1: And you right. want to check that if they open, um, all you have to do is gently put a, a knife blade on top of them, uh, touching the muscle. Mm-hmm. And If the muscle moves and shuts down, then it's alive. But if it doesn't move and you try it again, that means the muscle is dead, and a dead muscle does not belong in your food.
0: Right, so you just eighty six. Discard, discard. And I would say it's not unusual to have in a pound of muscles, let's say uh, they're the little bit bigger ones, so they're 25 or 30 to a pound. It's not unusual to have a couple of dead ones in a pound. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, so just
1: be be careful. You should expect it, actually. You should expect it, and you should definitely check your muscle. If they open, check it out. Yeah.
0: If they're open, doesn't mean that they're dead. No, you it doesn't mean. Have to just, you have to you can them. also just run water over them, and that they'll right. all close up when you run water if they're alive. So um, your favorite way to cook
1: them? Simple. My simplest way to cook it is sweat some shallots, diced shallots, add some white wine, fresh thyme picked, bay leaf, cook that for about three, four minutes, throwing all your mussels in there that have been washed and rinsed off, uh, when I say washed, I mean rinsed on the cold water. Put your muscle in there, cover, but you want to try to take a, a pan that's uh, maybe even shallower but wider so you can rotate and they can steam all at the same speed. So you cover your muscle, you bring it to a boil, and you let it for about one, two minutes, and then you toss your muscle and then you cover it again until you, all your muscles are open. And as soon as they're open... I remove it from the fire. I keep it covered for about another minute or so. You just don't want to overcook that because the mussels is like a – it's a, like literally like a mussel. You know, the more you cook it, the rubberer it gets. So you want to try to keep it tender, but you do want to cook it. So you don't want to have a, mm-hmm. a, a in-between cooked and raw mussel because that's not a good position for a shellfish. Now, we're pretty similar
0: except I don't like to stir them. To me, the more you stir them, the more you're going to knock them out of their shells. Right. And so for me, I like to do, a, if I'm going to serve them, like for two of us, I like to use a pot that is enough for muscles for two. I generally don't put a whole lot in there, mm-hmm. shallot butter, whatever. Right. Uh, and then I just put a lid on it, and I steam them until they're done. I don't, I don't even move them around, and I serve it in that same pot right. onto the table, whereas the hot pot keeps them hot. But you have to remember that you, you want to pull them from 30 seconds to a minute before you're, They're done because they continue to cook in that pot.
1: That's why I do that. I I check as soon as they're popped open, you just put it on the side for about another minute. So that is where the cooking keeps going and the the mussel keeps cooking. And as soon as that's done, I take the mussel out of the juice. I put the juice back on the the stove, a dollop of cream, finish the whole thing like this. And this is when we were talking about lemon earlier in the show. This is when you use your lemon zest your lemon diced uh, chopped confit, you know, sweet and sour kind of lemon, and you put that all over your, into your sauce, and you pour the whole thing all over your mussel, just like that. And that's, you have those shallots, you have the thyme, you know, the belly, if you obviously discard that um, as you're eating. And then the technique to eat mussels from my father, I was, I, I always to, used to love watching him eat mussel when I was a kid. He take one mussel, you eat the first mussel, and then that, Becomes your chopstick to eat all the other muscle. So, so he would extract.
0: Literally uses them as a, as a pincher.
1: As a pincher, yeah. and he would move the muscle meat out of the muscle, eat the muscle, and then every muscle shell go into each other. So when he's done, it looks like a, a bunch of stock. It's, it was very cute to watch him eat muscle. That's routine. a good memory I have of my And so dad.
0: I never take the muscles out of the pan and reduce the sauce. I just put everything in in the beginning, and I use a wide enough pan that uh, my big roasted toasted
1: garlic bread fits right into for for dunking (laughs) in all that juice uh, you can't have mussels and uh no bread you have have to have a good country grilled bread so you can soak into that beautiful juice and so uh, you know you always hear about
0: belgian you know the belgian version of mussels and and, and fries the fries are always on the side. Are, are they? Then I've never been to Belgium, so are they then dunked into
1: the juice? Well, they actually, in some places, they take a big bowl. There are some places where they take a big bowl, they put the fries on the bottom and pour all the mussels on top. So you kind of get semi-soggy, crispy fries and with all the mussel juice uh-huh. in it. I've tried it a few times. I used to do this at, uh, um, what did we do this? At Luco at Lule, one of the two places we did it. You'd have for to a answer while. that,
0: chef. I don't know. I'm sorry? You'd
1: have to answer that. I don't know. Yeah. Anyway, one of the two restaurants, I can't remember now. But we used to do it for a while, and we were serving it. And I, I insisted on serving the fries in the juice uh-huh. because that's originally how it's made. Mm-hmm. And you know, What you did take, your customers say? Well, you know, <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a bit far-fetched for Americans to go <laughs> soggy fry. Yeah. They're like, what happened to my crispy fry? I'm like, these are moules and they uh, not you know, you're eating mussels and juice, and you know
0: you'd be better off up in Canada where they put gravy all over their fries. Oh, the same idea. I've
1: had that before. The poutine. Uh huh. That's a bit much for me. I mean, that's not a fry anymore. That's more like I'm a, I'm an 18 year old drunk college student, <laughs> and I need to put something in my stomach. You know, at the Carlisle Room we have. F- and I'm telling you, it's nothing nothing wrong with that. But it's not a diet you can possibly sustain. Uh, at the Carlisle Room we have pho
0: fries, and we take and we make pho like the the Vietnamese soup. Uh huh. With the beef and everything, and we turn it into a gravy, and then we pour that over French fries. Oh.
1: So, fuh fries. Oh P H O. P H O. fuh fries. Four fries. Oh, those are not really fries. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, it was something I fought against, and then I finally had it, and then I was, okay, we can do this.
1: Back to muscles. Yes. One of the ways, and I used to have it as a kid, sometimes we would do this, because we had muscle mariniere all the time because we were close to the ocean and it's one thing that you can as a poor person go to the shore pick the mussels and then have something to eat right so that was an easy one to have Uh, the other one was to take half mussels you open the mussel by hand you take the top shelf off and then you make a compound butter with fresh herbs and garlic and then you put that on top of the mussel and you put that on the oven racks so my mom would pull the oven racks of the oven with the grill you know yeah. and then we stack the mussels right there in there so you'd like 150 mussels in the oven. No breadcrumbs or anything like that. No, no, just butter. You get the bread on the side. Yeah. Anyway, that and then the pan underneath because there's going to be some leakage. Obviously, some are going to seep down. But you put that in the oven and you bake that, you know, hot hot oven for a few minutes. It cooks the mussels and you get that beautiful garlic herb butter on top of that. Who doesn't like that? Then you're popping mussels for lunch. I tell you one thing: you need a nap after that.
0: Yeah. That stuff is pretty heavy.
1: But it's delicious. Uh-huh. And then, uh, you know, it was popular for a while. was like
0: mussel soup, like cream of mussels where they're oh, yeah, all yeah, pureed. Yeah. And it was like the hot thing for a yeah. while. I know it showed up on my menus. and
1: Me too. I did uh, a, a funnel saffron um, mussel soup. Uh-huh. It was really, really good. It was, you know, because you take, what we used to do is to steam the mussel on the side, put them on the side, take them off the shell. Yeah. And then uh, we do take all the broth, a little saffron. We have the saffron in it first. We put the saffron in there, a little cream. So you have this nice little kind of muscle bisque kind of idea. And then you put all your muscles back in with some nice salted um, fennel mm-hmm. in the middle. And that was really delicious. I, I like that soup. It's really yeah. good. Yeah. Very sounds, different. Sounds tasty. Yeah. Tasty. And I know it. But, uh, <laughs> we've
0: been listening to LMFAO. And um, yeah, it's. It's rubbing on you. It's gross. Yes. <laughs> Talking about rubbing, what's next? Uh, rubbing, it's time for Rub with Love a Tasty Trivia. Uh, Right here in the Hot Stove Society kitchen on Cairo Radio. It's uh, 97.3 FM. It's time for Food for Thought Tasty Trivia brought to you by Rub with Love Spice Rubs and Sauces. Uh, A secret weapon in your pantry. That's what I like to think of in there. A little secret weapon. Each rub is a complex blend that assists the home cook to build flavor. The flavor profile up in any dish, their versatility shines in grilling, and roasting, and sautéing. And look for them in your local grocery store, a specialty shop, or around the country, like uh, the Royal Wren in Geneva, Illinois, Laurie's Fish Market in Louisville, Kentucky, and the Cupboard in Fort Collins, Colorado. Or you can just go to TomDouglas.com and find them right there. there we go. That's a simple... or Bartels. Bartels has a nice selection too. Uh, Pamela, tell us who this week's winner is and who we're going to play against, and how do you play the game?
2: Well, we don't know who the winner is yet. We're going to play the game with five questions to each of the three contestants, and uh, the loser's going to pay for the product uh, to the winner. So, uh, Pay the shipping, yes. Pay the shipping.
0: I've already paid for the product to the winner. <laughs> okay. <laughs>
2: Uh, so the uh, prize today is going to be the three-pack of the top-selling rubs, which we love, salmon, chicken, and steak. But you can use these things on everything. I'm always roasting vegetables with steak rub, and it elevates them. Customer of the week, yes. Jennifer of Tacoma. Welcome. Jennifer, no, Jennifer of Tacoma. I don't think Jennifer you... of Tacoma. Of Tacoma. I don't think we've ever, in my time here, had someone so devoted to go three of our events in a row. So you're, you're my new favorite. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> How quick that was.
1: The other people that you used to be favorite, forget about it.
2: Forget about it. <laughs> Jennifer
1: of Tacoma is now the favorite.
2: Uh, All right. Starting with you, Terry. Go Number ahead. one. What food does the German word "Zwieback" refer to? Venison? Uh, used in America to help kids' teeth. Oh. Often and sometimes uh, favored for so you're digestive. you it's not venison? Carrots. Is what you're saying.
1: For teething carrots, uh, what do you use for teething? I used fennel stalks. Fennel stalks, <laughs> leeks. Uh, that would be delicious for a baby to have a lick well, in his mouth. There's ten. Answers. Celery.
2: <laughs> Celery. It's a twice-baked biscuit with a hint of sweetness. What are some common uses for the pungent, aromatic herb yarrow? Uh, What's some common usage for it? Mm -hmm. Soup? Or or any.
1: (laughs) You could use it in soup?
2: Yes! that was tough. The luxurious wild rice that we love isn't rice at all. What is it?
1: The grain. Uh, What can I call it? Yeah, I mean
2: Grass. Grass. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. The, uh, what region uh, is Vouvray from, and what is the grape?
1: Yes. <laughs> ooh, ooh, this is not rough at my alley, but just about. This is a region of the Loire Valley towards the, uh, about two-thirds into the Loire Valley, when you're going west to east, the grape is Chenin Blanc, and the wine can be done on a regular white dry wine or off-dry,
2: which is... Sweeter When it's picked in late August Beautiful Complete answer Correct I thought that would be A good answer And number five Also should be right up your alley I would love alley. if you
0: were wrong On that one uh,
2: <laughs> <laughs> Named three Of the five Mother sauces Three. Oh, uh, bechamel, Mother sauces
0: or, Compared by
1: Decided by who Certainly not
2: no, Mother sauces uh,
1: only exist In French uh, cooking Oh okay Sure So, <laughs> so but Too bad Too bad You can't get away with that
2: Bechamel what are Mother
0: Teresa sauce favorite sauces? <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh,
2: Español. Yes. And the other two would be... The, uh, Bordelais. Bordelais.
1: Bordel, no, Bordelais is not one. Um, okay, brown sauce. Let me see all this. What was I? Bordelais.
2: The one that starts with V. I don't want to say it incorrectly. Velute. Velouté, Yes. Vellute. Correct. Sorry. I'm sorry. And they considered the vinaigrettes the fifth of the mother sauces. Wow, Terry, what four was your out score? of five. Nice. Whew. Jennifer. Jennifer of Tacoma. Of Tacoma. Yeah. What is the main ingredient in the delicious Greek appetizer, often flamed, saganaki? It's a cheese. Feta? <laughs> <laughs> Close. Close enough. Close enough. Cassari. Yeah. get oh. yeah. Greek give- cheese. We're giving it okay. to Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. What did you
1: actually say? I didn't hear what you said. Oh, feta. Oh, yeah, yeah.
2: Yeah. It's good. Got, got very close. Uh, Saccharin is used as a substitute for what? Sugar. Yay! It should not What be. do you combine with mayonnaise to make a Russian dressing? Uh. Something to give it that beautiful color. Do you know what that looks like? Yes. But then you might have Cocktail it in sauce? That's
1: what I use, honestly. I think that
2: would work. Yeah. Actually, yeah. Uh, we,
1: we should give it to her because that's a sophisticated way to do it. Original is ketchup, right? Or tomato paste. Yep. Tomato oh, really? Yeah. Oh. So
2: cocktail sauces takes it up a notch. Yeah, that. it up a notch. <laughs> this is true or false. Rennet, the coagulating enzyme used to curdle milk for cheese, is from a young animal's stomach. Is that true or false? It's true. Yes. 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 Are you guys Thai now? Yes. Ooh, this is tough. And for your final one, what are some of the common vegetables in the popular dish ratatouille?
4: Eggplant, tomato,
1: zucchini.
2: Wow. Winner, winner. Wow. There's one more. She said
0: some of the common vegetables. Oh, yeah. some. Okay, yeah. never mind. What's the other one, onion? Onion. Yeah,
2: yeah got to have onion.
0: Beautiful world. Oh, I nice five out of job, five. job, Jennifer. Jennifer of to Tacoma. To I like her I like With her the bedazzled purse. I looked down there. I said, boy, our pots of banjo are looking good. <laughs> Turns out it's Jennifer's purse. I
2: know, it's so cute. <laughs> okay, Tommy D, what There's is nowhere the, to go but down from here? I know. What is the main ingredient in filet po- powder? In what? Uh, filet powder, in, Sasfres. Yes. Park. What would you serve? This is in honor of your incredible platter collection. Serving platter collection. What would you serve on a well and tree platter? Uh, I would serve ratatouille.
0: Because you can put ratatouille in the well, and then you put kind of toasted in the in the tree.
2: It's for resting meat, so the juices all collect in the troughs of the tree branches. Number three, what is traditionally hidden inside a New Orleans King's Cake?
0: Traditionally? There's so many things. Okay. uh,
1: Actually, traditionally, there is one thing. The porcelain little baby doll. Yes. That originally yes. You know, it was actually a bean. A bean. And or... uh, I believe that New Orleans was actually one of the first places in the world where the plastic.
2: Yes, they introduced a plastic baby.
1: Plastic baby. was is very sad.
2: It's so sad. Yeah, I, I th- it's a, it's very a return sad. to the father I think bean. we should
0: go back to putting real babies in the king. <laughs> <game. laughs> As a new parent with, or new godparent with a feisty <laughs> grandchild. <laughs>
2: That's going to be a good threat. I'm going to put you in a king cake if you're not careful.
1: Just try nuts
2: and bolts. (laughs) Number four, what are the two varieties of persimmon you commonly find in the U.S.?
0: Oh, boy. Uh, Haiku and fuku
2: or something like that. No, Fuji. Fuji and haiku. Yeah, I can't pronounce it, but you're right. I was close. Come on. Yes. No, you get it. You get it. And in closing, what meal are the French talking about when they say petit dejeuner? Petit-dejeuner.
1: Uh, they're talking about uh, high tea.
2: School, I'm Kerry.
1: Petit-dejeuner. Before, before, before lunch. Before lunch. Yeah, petit-dejeuner is the breakfast. Why, didn't they, why don't they just say so? Why do they have to? <laughs> <laughs> Congratulations, Jennifer
0: yes. of Tacoma, and winning the uh, Rabbit Love three-pack. We appreciate you for jumping up and being part and of our show. Tom is in charge of delivery, so we will deliver it to you. If you want to be part of the show like Jennifer you can come here right to the Hot Stove Society buy a ticket at our website or you can join our community live on Facebook or or you can just follow us on on the terrestrial radio you're listening to us on Cairo 97.3 FM the show is produced by Pamela Hinckley and Sean McFadden our editor is Sean don't call me dottore and remember if you miss any episode
1: of our show you can listen via podcast just subscribe with your favorite podcast app And don't forget to buy your King's Gallet. Have a wonderful weekend.